one sense of the word, it feels a little uh, strange to be in the midst of a sermon series about thriving when family and friends, fellow Texans, are all, many of are huddled around a shrinking sense of home and safety and protection as the storms of life literally in the shape of rain and tornadoes and hurricanes are, have descended upon them. And yet, actually, it is the perfect message for them if they were here to hear it. For whatever life brings our way, whatever circumstances the world in which we live or is experiencing, they are all the same in that we, the people of God, are made to thrive in their face. It's not always easy to proclaim that message. It's not always easy to live it out. And yet, that is the message of faith that we sing. That is the message of faith that we claim. That is the message of faith that we trust when we're in the midst of trying individual or community circumstances. We're going to hear this morning from uh, a testimony about thriving and the journey to thriving. And it's going to be Chad Heron that we hear now. So as a child, I grew up in a loving family, a mother, father, and an older sister. We had a church home. Uh, it wasn't a huge priority, but we made it most of the time. And then roughly around age 12, my mother was diagnosed with what we came to learn was terminal cancer. And once she passed away again at age 13, I made a decision to fall away from Christ. It was a difficult time in my life. I came to the conclusion that there must not be a God. And that was sort of my stage one, and I was, prove it to me, you know, show me scientific proof. And I kind of went that direction for a period of time. And then, I'm not sure what really caused it, but I got to a point where I said, okay, you know what? I really do believe there is a God, but man, I'm really angry at that God. How could this happen? So fast forward uh, to about 2003, I'm about 13 years later or so, and I, I meet this uh, beautiful girl, and uh, we start to date, and it turns out she's going to be my future wife, Sarah Heron. I asked her early on in our relationship, so what do your parents do? She said, oh, well, mom's a teacher. I said, oh, that's great. What does your dad do? She said, he's a pastor. And <laughs> kind of took me by surprise a little bit. And because uh, I realized if I was to marry this woman, I was not going to have any choice but to, to get back into church. And we get married. And sure enough, in order to keep my wife happy, started going back to church. And coming back to church after having not been for 15 years or so in my life, I had a lot of preconceived notions. Um, I figured people would judge me. Who is this guy who's coming into church? Like they would find me out. Uh, that's a, a feeling that I had. Wasn't very familiar with the Bible. Felt a little uncomfortable. And I don't know exactly when it quite happened, but I found myself going from going to church to please her to where I was getting up in the morning and I was excited to go to church. And part of that was just being in a church family where you could feel the love, you could feel people who cared for one another and also finding a really tight Sunday school class where I learned everybody was not perfect, that people still struggled on certain issues dealing with their faith, and so that allowed me to grow. I tell everybody that 
I feel fortunate that I walked the path that I did, both not knowing Christ and then falling in love with Christ. I tell everybody it's given me a wonderful perspective. I would say even before I knew Jesus Christ, I felt like I had a pretty normal life. Uh, I was happy for the most part, going through the same struggles that you go through in college. And I think that's one of the challenges that we have. A lot of people believe they're happy. A lot of people are making good grades. A lot of people are holding down the job. You're doing what, what's asked of you. And I'm very thankful that somebody came to me and witnessed to me and showed me that there is a life that's even better than what you think is actually possible. And so, you know, that's why I say there's a big difference between happiness and joy. And it's only that the type of joy and everlasting peace that you can find when you have that relationship with uh, Jesus Christ. You never quite understand to what level you can soar to with your, your joy and happiness. And when you have that relationship with Jesus Christ, your cup just runs over and you can't do anything but to share it with others. I began doing prison ministry about five years ago and, and we essentially go into the prison four days uh, at a time every six months, work with 42 inmates who are broken, who are lost, and if there's a place where forgiveness is needed more than prison, I don't know where it is because it, there is literally no hope and these guys are starving to, to just cling to something to help lift them up from their daily lives. If you'd have told me I'd be doing prison ministry 15 years ago, I'd have told you you're crazy. I think as a child of God who at one point in time just didn't know that he was, I see our society today, I see a lot of the, the current issues that our country is dealing with. I see a lot of the comments on Facebook, unforgiveness, the hate, the people worshiping political parties and things of that nature. I feel very fortunate that as a follower of Jesus Christ that I understand the need to properly order your life and follow Christ first and everything else second. I try to be a beacon of light everywhere that I go, even if I don't say anything, even if I don't use words, I want people to look at me and say, man, what's up with that guy? Why is he so happy? We were made to Some people have the idea that being a Christian or a follower of Christ is some kind of nirvana on earth where you're protected from every uh, bad circumstances or you're protected from ever making a bad decision, and that's just not the case. I'll admit that every time that we do one of the videos and we listen to somebody share their faith, I'm very particular about wanting to highlight what in their life experience is helpful to the rest of us. I'll also admit that when it's my son-in-law speaking that I kind of uh, am a little more intrepid about that as as well just because of the of my knowledge of that faith journey and what it has meant to him. I never shall forget when suddenly Sarah's best friend called us on the phone one day while they were in Austin in that place where people go to uh, get a great education. Some of, it is, some of it is at school. Some of it is uh, in other places. I remember how 
I always wanted to go to UT but never got there. And how when Sarah got there, it was kind of living vicariously for me a little bit through her going there. And then as the way she was going to live while she was there began to come home, I, I wanted to vicariously go down and grab her and bring her home. But that's part of life. That's part of being a parent. I also remember that when Natalie called and said Sarah's found the right guy, I was like, yeah, right. You know, she hadn't even been dating anybody that much that I've known. And, and she had just dated Chad her time or two. And here was her best friend in the world saying she had found the right one. And I'm like, ah, surely not. <laughs> surely not so quickly. But Natalie was certain, and that did kind of disturb me. So at that point, if uh, Natalie was certain and not too terribly long after that, we got to meet Chad. I figured, well, she might be a little more serious than I thought. So then we started getting bits and pieces of his story. And we found out that he hadn't been going to church for a long time. We found out about his mom and what had happened there. And then they moved in with us a few months later. They were started a job, and then they decided they wanted to um, save money to go to uh, in order to buy a house, so they moved in with us for a while. And you say, well, that, that must have been uh, fun, and it was fun. Chad was that kind of guy. Now, what Chad didn't know was that Sally had been praying for both of our girls since they were very, very small, that they would one day find the right man to share their life with, the right person to be their husband. And so knowing that that selection that they were making on their own, and it was their own choice, obviously, one that we had decided we would not interfere with when that time came before that time ever came. You get all set up for the right thing, and then she brings home this guy who's not going to church. And I'm thinking, what are you thinking? You know? And not only that, but while we were doing the premarital counseling, we were really through it. I said, well, y'all have any more questions? And Chad said, well, I have one. And I'm wondering, okay, what has this guy got a question about? He's marrying my daughter. What, what's the deal, you know? Uh, we've gone through all this stuff that we're supposed to go through. But what Chad said at that point is he looked across at me and he said, I just want to know that if your daughter decides not to go to church, are you going to try and make her go to church? <laughs> I don't know that I smiled at that point. I don't remember. Maybe Chad remembers. But I do remember clearly what I said to him. While I, my heart was kind of racing inside, I said to him, well, first of all, let's be clear, Sarah's a grown woman. She's been raised a certain way, and she is making her choice for you to be her husband, and that's her choice. In the same way, you can be sure that I will not try to make Sarah do anything. First of all, because I can't. She's not a child anymore. She's an adult. You remember that, Chad? Not really. <laughs> Here's the good part. Even though he doesn't remember it, I also said to him, I'm sure he didn't remember the second part either. I said, but you need to remember that she, even though she's not been going to church for the last four years while she's been in Austin, she used to go to church all the time, and it was an important part of her life. So you should not be surprised if someday she wants to return to the church. And that's where we left the conversation, whether he remembers it or not. Not going to give him a second chance. But the interesting thing was that it kind of worked that way, but in a very slow process. 
You know how hard it is, if you're a parent, you do know how hard it is, if your children have gotten that age, to watch your child select a partner in life and to know that they're not a believer. For our perspective, that was very hard. But we also had some examples in our lives of parents who over-functioned for their adult children when they decided to get married and ruined relationships by doing so. So we opted not to do that. You might want to put that in your pocket and file away if you have young children. Because you will be very tempted, very tempted to be more of a parent than one that they might confide in. At that point, when they made that decision to, to, to get married, we, we really liked Chad. Chad was great. And we never mentioned church or talked about church to him that we recall unless he asked questions about it. Because we knew that he wasn't ready for that yet. And it would take time for it to come. What we believed and what Sarah believed, she told me so, she said, don't worry, he will, be, he will be believed. He will believe. And I remember saying to her, you don't know that for sure, darling. Uh, you can think you know that, but you, belief is a very personal thing. And she said, he will believe. Fast forward a little bit, to use his analogy. And one night she was fussed and frustrated and upset with Chad as we were somewhere loading up the trunk of a car somewhere we'd been and something was said about what's the matter and she said oh I'm just agitated Chad he he won't really go to church I said really surprise surprise you know and I I said what's what's the deal she said well I'm mad because he won't go to church I said well you knew that when you married him right you remember that conversation yeah yeah I remember what you said I remember I remember and I said well you're enjoying church, though, aren't you? Now, that was very facetious because I knew she wasn't going to church either. <laughs> and she said to me then, she said, no, I'm not going so hard to go with him wanting to sleep in and lie there. And I said, so you want him to know how important it is for you to go to church, right? Yeah. And to be a Christian, yeah. But you're not going to church yourself. How's he supposed to get that? It's so important to you that you won't even get out of bed. I don't think we had a great ending that night. <laughs> we, we decided to quit talking about it, I think probably both of us. But the next Sunday, as I recall, she went to church, and he didn't go. Now, that was a step in the right direction, but the most important thing she did was she got up the week after that, as I recall, and she did go to church, and he went with her. Because to keep her happy, as he said in the video, you know, he's going to have to go to church. He probably kind of thought that was going to happen every now and then, sooner or later. But a funny thing happened when a person, a significant other for Chad, wanted him to go to church enough to go herself and continue to encourage him. I don't know how she encouraged him. I'm not going to ask Chad to share that. That might not, might not have been the best way. Most spouses don't encourage always in the right way, right? Right? Sometimes we try to berate people or pull people talk people into going to church or having faith, and we really can't do it. Every person has to make that choice for themselves. But once a significant person exercised their faith, that person responded to it. And then when he got in the community of faith where he began to worship and to listen to the scriptures read and become a part of a small group, a small group and a church group and a good heart became open to work out his stuff with God. The reason I think that makes a good example for a, one, of, one lesson in how to thrive is because we all, at some time or another, 
come to face some of those same kind of challenges in one way or another. His was centered around, at a very critical time in his life, the loss of his mother. No wonder that a, a young man, 12 or 13 years old, who had been going to church and probably considered himself a Christian at that point, as 12 and 13-year-olds often do if they've been raised in the church, a very critical thing happened. His mother died, and he couldn't make any sense out of it. Now, he couldn't make any sense out of it. He couldn't get the right kind of feeling for it in his heart. He didn't have the right kind of trust there to help him understand it. And as I wondered what passage of Scripture would fit this testimony that Chad was given about how he learned to thrive, it, was a, it took a while to find a passage that I thought was appropriate, and I picked up one that is very straightforward because it talks about what is the greatest commandment, and this commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, according to the Gospel of Matthew, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Luke and Mark add mind and strength. They add a, a, a second word to it. But the, the reality of it, according to Dr. Barclay, William Barclay in his commentary, and many others that I referred to all said the same thing, what they were trying to say by saying that phrase of heart and mind and soul, that you will love God with all you have, with all that you are, with every part of the, your personality faculty, your entire being would be invested in loving God. That's the point of that passage of Scripture. And I think for us, when we're talking about obstacles to faith and how, how we can all experience thriving, we need to remember that the, really the only way to really experience thriving is to be involved in that process of heart, heart, hand, and head. If we're not involved with all three of those working, we get into trouble. And that's what I really want to talk about this morning in light of Chad's testimony. It worked out for him. And it worked out for him because he was able to get his head and his heart and his hands wrapped around God again. And when he did, it became larger than the problem of trying to understand how God didn't deliver on his prayers to heal his mother. Now, to me, this is one of the most serious topics we discuss with our children in our homes, with our teenagers, with young adults. It's one of the most serious things we teach other than loving God in a straightforward kind of manner is how do we respond to the trouble in the world when it comes to meet us? How do we pray to a God to help us and how do we respond when the help that we're praying for is not the way that God helps us? We have to struggle with those things. It doesn't matter how old we are or how young we are. When, when terror comes our way because of circumstances in our lives, one of the things that's going to happen is that the devil is going to try to set up camp in our heads. He's going to try to convince us that God doesn't really exist. If God really did exist, he would have delivered you from this problem. The second kind of terror he's going to try and convince you of is in your head is that if prayer really meant anything, then God would have heard your prayer and would have given you what you wanted. How else could God not want you to experience life except with your mother? The devil is going to set up residence in our conscience and in our mind to try and tear away that in his case, as a young child, that youngster's understanding and heartfelt need for God in their life. And once his head started putting that doubt in there, and he did not have the tools 
in his head at that age and that time to overcome those thoughts, his heart eventually succumbed to his head. And they were both racing at that point in his life. And sometimes we, don't, we forget as Christians when everything's going along and we're thriving that somebody next to us may be struggling mightily with their faith. They may be struggling to understand the God that we pray to, the we God that we claim is saving us and protecting us when we don't feel or experience that protection in the immediacy of our present circumstances. We may have in our head thoughts that have been put there because we've heard them so many times and because some people believe them so strongly. Thoughts such as, God is in control of everything. God is all-powerful. Everything that happens is according to the will of God. If those thoughts are not biblically contextualized, if they are not put into the whole context of Scripture, they do not make any logical sense in the normal routine of a life lived out. Because every one of us knows that things go on in our world that would never be what God would want, right? If you're here this morning and you really believe that God has turned the world into one big robotic platform, you may have believed that because of a theological statement based by some preacher at some point in their messages or by some well-meaning parent or grandparent. God is in control of everything without qualifying that. If you're going to tell me that God is in control of everything and that were true, and if I thought that were true in the complete and perfect sense that we typically think of control, then I would take off my microphone. I would walk down these steps and I would walk out that door. Now, somebody is sitting back there who's read a few books and thinking, are you saying the providence of God is not real? I didn't say that. What I said was specifically is that God is not in control of everything. Directly is what I mean. You think God is in control of somebody who went in and strapped a bomb to their body and blew up all the people around them? You think God is the author of that? You think God controlled that? You think God wanted that to happen? No. I do not. You say, well, well, I do. Well, that's your privilege to feel that way. You can be wrong all you want. I do not believe that is a witness of Scripture. And I do believe in the providence of God. But in the providence of God, God chose to give those made in his image free will. And as the story goes in Genesis 3 and every chapter thereafter, we botched that. We messed it up. And sin and evil have come into our world and into individuals, causing us and tempting us to make bad choices often. And when those bad choices happen, they're not because God wants them to. As someone just asked me as recently as this morning, so why did not God make us perfect, make human beings perfect? And I said, he did. And she said, no, I mean make us perfect so that we would make only good choices. And I said, well, if God had make us perfect so that we'd make only good choices, we really wouldn't be making choices, would we? There's a difference. 
In order to make a good choice, there has to be the possibility of making the opposite choice. Otherwise, we would be nothing more than a cat or a dog or a giraffe or an elephant or a skunk smelling up the world in which we live. We're a little bit like skunks, aren't we, sometimes? Yeah, my mind goes in weird directions. And yes, I know this is a hard argument for many of you. You've read a certain books with a certain particular slant theologically, and that makes sense to you. If God is in control, I feel much safer. If God is in control, I feel much better. I don't have to try and explain the unexplainable. But the reality is God is not even in control of whether or not you believe unless you are a fully Calvinized Presbyterian. And, you know, even they have dropped the part about God believing that some have been chosen to be saved and some have been chosen to be damned, at least most of them. Now, as Methodists, we do not believe that. We believe in a thing called free will. And we believe that God who loves us has given us that free will. And even when we make bad choices, that God still loves us. We believe as Methodists that even though obstacles come along in life that we prayed mightily for and they didn't happen exactly as we prayed, we still believe God loves us and we still love God. You see, that's where the heart and the head and the hands tie together. Once those are all working in concert together, when something comes in my head that's bad, my heart will help me throw it out. Sometimes people will say something to me that logically I'm thinking, man, that sounds right. But in my heart, I know it's not. And so I just reject it. Somebody will say, I don't know how you can believe God really exists. I don't believe God really exists. And my head goes, you know, they're really kind of right. It's really hard to see God at work in this world. Look at the mess it's in. And that's another reason why I don't believe God is in completely in control with all the details. Because if God were completely in control of all the details, the world wouldn't be in the mess it's in now. It would look like the Garden of Eden. Have any of you been living in the Garden of Eden lately? That would be a no, right? It doesn't mean God won't control it in the end because God will control it all in the end. And there will be a place where everyone is in perfect agreement. There's no more crying and no more tears, but it will not be on this earth until the new heaven and the new earth arrive. Until that time, we're leaving in the meantime. I realize I'm going to get lots of emails about this subject. It's okay. I'm not going to read them probably. <laughs> I will check them, and I will glance them to see how far uh, away you've gone. But I, I, I prob I'm not going to be upset by them because I know it's a very much a southern evangelical belief too. I, understand, I get that. I'm just trying to teach you what I believe is a full biblical presentation of how God is in control without exercising that control all the time. I even did that with my children, didn't you? Could I have talked Sarah out of marrying Chad? Hmm, probably not. I could have tried, but I probably couldn't have. And if I could have, it would have been a mistake, now looking back on it. But I didn't even try. Because I believed it was her choice. She had earned that right by becoming an adult. So you see, when you come to that place where you have a, your life ordered, where you get to make choices, and you give people the freedom to make their choices, 
then you've arrived at a place in adulthood where there's a chance for people to thrive, especially if they have this triangle worshiping of their head, uh, working together, the head and the heart and the soul and strength, the hands. I think that if those are working together, there's a, an opportunity for us to thrive like never before and a protection from the obstacles that come our way. Now, yes, there are things that happen that challenge us. When my sister lost, for all realistic purposes, her eyesight at a very young age with a disease where she was the, the 11th person in the United States having surgery on her eyes for that, that problem, I wasn't happy with God. I was kind of like, okay, God, where are you? What's going on? It's my sister over there. Doing the ministry thing? How you doing? Good to see you in church. I know you live a long way away, but it's good to be home, isn't it? And you say, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just doing whatever. Don't, don't get excited when I take an aside, okay? If you're visiting for the first time, you could be the sermon subject next week. <laughs> uh, if that's not an encouragement to come back and see if that really happens, I don't know what is, right? Everybody gets to be the star. But in this life, by turning people loose, you free them up. If we had tried to make Sarah or Rachel do something, they wouldn't be the Sarah or Rachel they are today. Now, the truth is, if you can talk your child out of getting married, then probably your child is not ready to be married. My grandparents tried to talk my mother from marrying my daddy. He was a sorry no good in my mother's words. Her mother said about my daddy, before it was all over, my mother, my sorry daddy, had not only stayed married to my mother and had three children, one of which she didn't see till he was a year and a half years old because she was so mad at her for marrying him. And mother passed on the hurt that that was to me, so I wasn't going to pass that on to my children. But that sorry outfit that was my daddy also got jobs for two of her three sons when they were un unemployed. And that sorry outfit came to be very acceptable to her as the years went by. We're not always wise. Not wise enough to select the person that our children fall in love with. Yes, I know people make some bad choices, but we never know how those choices are going to end up. Look at Chad. <laughs> he was a great guy. A lot of fun to be with, a guy you'd want to go hunting with and hang out with, a guy who had seen a lot of the world, but he wasn't in church, but he's in church now, and he's not just in church, he's in it with his head and with his heart and with his hands, and that's because he and God got together, and if he said, I don't even know when it exactly happened, but I fell in love with Christ. All we need to do is get our partners into the right environment in a church home, in a church family. If they're not in church, and there's a good chance they will be. But we have to remember, even with our children, they all make a decision someday about whether they'll maintain the faith they've proclaimed as a child and as youth, or whether they will choose another way. When I saw the youth gathering down to pray for one another at the chancel rail, Cindy leaned over and said, I'm so proud of our youth. We are, we are proud of our youth. But the youth are like us. 
they're still going along. They're still working at being a follower. And here's the catchy part for you. All these other people out here, even these, the white-haired ones among us, they're still struggling. They're still working at it too. In fact, Paul said in Romans 12 too, that we must continually be working on the renewing of our mind, how we think about God and what we know about God. Because what we know about God when we're this tall hopefully will not be what we know about God when we're this tall. What we know about God in the beginning is not what we know about God at the end because we grow up and we begin to mature. But we never get so mature that we're through growing. There's a reason why a lot of these folks have been coming to Sunday school for 75 years and they're still coming. You're wondering, hadn't they got it yet? We never get it all. God is so big and so big to understand and is working with us at the appropriate moments in our life that we are constantly a work in progress. That is Wesleyan theology and what they believe about being saved. We are continually being saved over and over and over again. I'm saved every day in a new and a special way, and so are you. If you're keeping your mind and your heart and your hands engaged in your relationship with God, let any part of that fall away and you become a weaker target for the evil in our world. Because your mind is a powerful thing. God gave you a powerful mind on purpose. And if we don't fill it with a correct biblical knowledge of God, all we have to put in there is just what somebody else thought or what we used to think when we were 10 years old. But as we get older, things happen. And we need an adult understanding of God. And we need a growing understanding of God. That never goes away. That need never goes away. I am amazed at times. To worship with Tad is to have an exercise because he likes to worship. He loves to praise the Lord. And he comes alive in the process of worshiping now and in his job. His, his testimony is ever-present and ready to be shared with the salespeople he works with, with his partners, with everybody around him. You couldn't shut Chad up now talking about his faith if you tried to. Sometimes he's just, he's just running over. That is so different than the Chad I knew at the beginning. Still the same guy in some ways, but that good guy is now a great guy. And I am so proud to call him my son-in-law because he's teaching his children how to go into the faith. He's praying with them. He's teaching them to pray. He's bringing them to church. He's setting all the right examples for him. But he knows what I've never experienced. Life is so precious that at any time, the most important person to someone else may pass away in this world. And our faith may be challenged to its core. He suffered that as a young teenager. And in his adult life, he's been able to overcome it with God's help. When that happens to someone near you, are you going to be the hand that reaches out to them and takes hold of them and believes in them and cares about them and loves them even when they don't love the church or God all of a sudden? Are you going to be intimidated by their anger at God? 
Are you going to be a wise person who can smile and say, I understand you're hurt. I hurt with you. I don't have all the answers, but I just want you to know I care. And I'll be here for you now and always. See, that's the kind of fellowship and relationship that makes Christians like Christ. So, contemplating these things that are going on in our life as individuals and as a church, we come to that point where we realize that our mind, if it's filled with knowledge and if it's humble, if we have the humble mind of Christ that Paul talks about in Philippians 2, 5, then we can really be ready to thrive in this world. If we're really holding on to that love we have for, for Jesus in our heart, then our mind can't shake our heart. If our heart is hurt and the world is shaking it so bad that we, it feels like it's going to break apart, then we can also think in such a way to remind ourselves and to remind our heart that God has not left us, that God is still there. Even if when we're in our serving, we're experiencing failure or we're struggling or it's not working out right, we can feel and think our way out of a disappointment of what we're trying to do. You see how that can all tie together? And when they're all working well, thriving is the only thing we know even in the midst of the most trying circumstances of our life. I think I need to sit down. Yeah, I do. I need to sit down because it's almost too personal. <laughs> when you're talking about people that you know so well, and you're hearing week after week testimonies of people in their faith, it's a precious thing to receive them. And you know, it's not critical that every word every one of us says has to be theologically perfect or biblically accurate. It's best if they are, but when do we get old enough to be sure that everything we're saying is right? I received a lot of strange looks in my life as a pastor. You're probably thinking, well, I don't know why, looking how goofy you believe. But the reality is that a lot of times people will ask me something and I'll just look at them and I'll say, I don't know. And they'll look at me like, what do you mean you don't know? You're the preacher. you got to know, right? No, I really don't. Because if I were God, it would be a different world. Some of you are thinking, thank God you're not God. And some of those would be me. Because in my world, no child would ever lose a parent to death. In my world, no child would ever be born except 100% perfect. In my world... Nobody would ever get sick before they passed away. They'd all live to be 101, and then they'd just take a breath and fall over. In my world, there'd never be a flood or a hurricane or a tornado. In my world, everybody would be in church. I'd make them if I were God. In fact, somebody asked me again this morning that very question. Why didn't God make us do that? Because God knows that the only relationship that works is when there's true freedom both parts of the relationship. And I have to tell myself that every time I'm around somebody that I know is not a Christian. Because the first thing I want to do is I want to take the good evangelical stance and grab them and say, believe right now, believe, believe. Don't go away from here unless you believe. But that doesn't work. 
and I can't do it for her. Everybody has to choose, and I've got to love them until they do. And if I love them until they do, I've done my job. The rest is between them and God. And for me to accept it. Your lovely people to listen to me this long. I think I didn't even look when I started, but I'm about done now. I think I think I am. I think I'm ready to pray. Father, sometimes it does seem like it would be just so much easier if we were programmed to do everything we should. Think the right way, know everything we need to know, feel the right things in our hearts, do the right things with our hands. Sometimes we think it would be easier if this getting mature wasn't so hard and didn't take a whole lifetime. But that's the way we're made. And I thank you for that. I thank you that in your wisdom, you made sure that each of us could know that there's only one God. And we are not it. That we are human and we are made in the image of God and that's a beautiful thing. And our failures... In our accomplishments, it's a beautiful thing. The way you bring people up beside of us when we're tempted to walk away from you, who lovingly encourage us to come back, it's a beautiful thing. The way you give us a church where we can come and worship, even when perhaps we've been away from God a long time, and we can come into a fellowship of believers and feel the power of the music, the beauty of the prayers, and the peace and the joy that is being experienced in fellowship. It's a beautiful thing. And Lord, when we can sit and be taught and begin to understand the God of the Scriptures, begin to make more sense out of the world in which we live without having all the answers because of the mind you've given us to use, that's a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. Father, these are your people, and they're beautiful. And I pray, Lord, that as they arise and go today, after we close and worship, that they will take a true love, a love that's powerful in their heads, a love that's powerful in their hearts, a love that's powerful in their actions. And I pray that you'll use it to love someone else who is just hurting, is just feels like they're alone. Perhaps they've been bruised by the church are bruised by life. And what they really need is someone to love them. I pray, Lord, you would give us that opportunity to be that someone for them. That through our gentle love, they might come to know the compassion of a God who understands them perfectly and loves them still. If there's someone here this morning, Lord, who doesn't know that love, that healing, forgiving powerful love of God that wants to draw us to him in fellowship. I pray they just open their hearts and their minds to you today. Just take an open stance to let you come in. If they're frightened, let them receive courage. If they're lost, let them see there's a way. If they're hurting, let them feel the balm of the Lord Jesus Christ making them well. Lord, if there's somebody here who's trying to do it on their own, who thinks that they can be all that you've called them to be without the church, or they think that being a faithful person is just about them and you, let them know that in order to be fully with you, they need to be fully in community. And if they're here today, Lord, and they want to make that decision, 
We would be so happy to be their brothers and sisters in Christ. Whatever needs to be done, Lord, I pray your spirit will accomplish it today amongst the hearts that are ready and yielding to it. In Jesus' name.